think our younger children can be dismissed to children's church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline, says the flock of Christ. We are on the last half of John chapter 10 today. We'll be starting at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open your word to us this morning, that we might hear and understand and believe. Father, that we might know the truth of these words. And do this for us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week I mentioned the, uh, that's quite old, devotional book, um, a Shepherd Looks at the Good Shepherd by Philip Keller. And uh, it really is a good book. It's still in print. It's sold zillions of copies. And uh, I encourage it to you. And he talks at the end of this book about when he first started as a shepherd and gathering the sheep. He decided to go into this uh, business. 
and he writes about starting his flock, and he says, At first, sheep seemed strange and unfamiliar, so I sought expert advice and help. I was determined that I would keep only the finest stock and breed the best animals possible. There would be no halfway measures. My sheep were special and would become increasingly precious. So I went to see a highly esteemed sheep breeder who lived about 30 miles away. He led me out to his fields where his flock was grazing. There were about a dozen big strong rams resting in the shade. Well, son, he said, pick out whichever ram you wish. You are just starting out with sheep. I want you to have the best. I replied that only he knew which was the finest ram. It was he who had poured years of his life and expertise into these sheep. Only he knew which one was the most valuable ram in his possession. Only he knew how great and precious it was to him. And not hesitating, he strode in among the rams and quickly caught hold of a fine, strong ram. This is Arrowsmith II, he said. He is the supreme grand champion ram and has won all the top awards across the country. No one else has ever handled him but me. He's my top prize ram. Tremendously valuable. More than that, very precious to me in a very personal way. And Philip Keller writes, he says, I considered it one of the great honors of my life that he would permit me to take this ram home to become the top ram for my flock. So that day it came home to me with great clarity what made the difference between one sheep and another was the sheep's owner. In whose hand had they been? Who had been responsible for raising them and shepherding them? Was it a superb shepherd? But those are good questions for us. Whose hand are we in? Who is handling and shaping us? Whose life is modeling my life? Who do we belong to? Who is our shepherd? Well, to answer those questions, we can turn among many biblical passages. Uh, we can turn to today's text in John chapter 10. And the first thing we learn is the shepherd is the Christ. The shepherd is the Christ, starting again at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. I'm not sure there's harsher words in the Bible than hearing from Jesus, I told you, and you do not believe. He goes on, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is, is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we come to our passage this morning, and the first thing we see is that Jesus is back in the temple, and he's teaching the people. And some of the people there question him, asking him in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
And what they failed to realize is that Jesus has been telling them plainly. Not only that, he's been showing them plainly, both by his miracles and by his fulfilling of numerous Old Testament prophecies. And so he answers them by letting them know, first, that sheep are sensitive to his voice. Sheep are sensitive to his voice. That should be the first blank there in the outline. He answers them, verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I told you, but you weren't listening. Nor does he say, I told you, but you didn't hear me. He says, I told you and you do not believe. And he's equating hearing and listening, being sensitive uh, to his voice with believing. The Apostle John, in writing this gospel, is so convinced that the record of Jesus' words and the record of Jesus' works was more than enough to bring people to believe that Jesus was the Christ. Indeed, for those people who have eyes to see, a biblical way of saying that they're able to understand, So clear had been Jesus' references to himself, his use of the Old Testament, his handling of the divine titles, all those I am statements we've talked about, his discussions of the relationship between God and himself, that he has uh, virtually pointed himself out as the Christ to anyone who cared to pay attention. All of the miracles he has done speak for him. This is the one who turned the water into wine, who healed the royal official's son, who made the lame man walk, who fed 5,000 people and then walked on the water, who made the blind man see, and who would next make the dead live. How could anyone see all this and not believe? It's because, as Jesus goes on to say, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. See, their failure to believe came from a failure to be. They were not his sheep, therefore they didn't believe. They didn't listen. They didn't hear him. And so they were unable to recognize him as the Christ because they're too busy listening to all sorts of other shepherds. And you can't obey someone you can't hear. That's the next characteristic of sheep that we find here. Sheep are obedient to his leading. Sheep are obedient. He continues, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And Jesus wants us to understand first that he knows us. He knows us through and through. We can put on an act for our friends. We can come to church and smile and pretend that everything's going just swell. But Jesus knows the sheep. And he knows when everything is not swell. And he knows when we're hurting and struggling and frustrated. And he knows because we're his creation, he made us. And he knows because we're his sheep, he bought us at a great price, at the cost of his own blood. There's a sense of ownership here, that we are his. There's a sense of intimacy here. He knows all about us, and he wants us to know all about him. And there's a sense of trust here. He always does what's right and best for us. And therefore, we follow him, we do what he says, we go where he sends, and we regularly listen to his word for guidance and understanding. 
And for those who fail to believe, life is simply a succession of haphazard events with no real meaning. But for Christ's sheep, there's always the thought of the good shepherd who gave his life for them, who constantly leads them into places where they should go and whose voice gives real meaning to life. And when that's true for us, then we're to know that the sheep are secure in his hand. The sheep are secure in his hand. In verses 28 and 29, I think these are really the key verses of this whole passage. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. As sheep, we should be secure in the hand of the shepherd. Notice that we're not merely to feel secure, but we actually are secure. Jesus says that we will never perish. It's his gift to us. It can't be earned, only received. And once received, it can never be lost. Jesus is God's gift to us, to you and to me. We saw back in John 3.16, a verse that many people know. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you could perish, it wouldn't be eternal life. If you could be snatched away, it wouldn't be eternal life. If you could be lost, it wouldn't be eternal life. But the good news is, is that it is eternal life, and it's yours forever, and you are secure. In a world where nothing seems secure, where every day's uh, morning paper brings news of tragedy and disappointment and heartbreak, the eternal security of the shepherd protecting his sheep for always and forever is truly something to be thankful for. After all, Jesus promised us is backed up by God the Father. He has given we who are the sheep to Christ who is the shepherd. God the Father has chosen the sheep to be part of his flock before the beginning of the world. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We have been unconditionally elected, chosen by God, the one who is greater than all. Our security is guaranteed by his power. Psalm 118 reminds us, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The shepherd has made sure that the sheep are completely secure in his hand. And he can do that because the shepherd is the son of God. Move to the last half of our passage today. The shepherd is the son of God, picking up at verse 31. He, he finished verse 30 by after saying that no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. He said, I and the father are one. And that's a transition verse. And so the next verse, they respond to that. Verse 31 the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. These are the same people saying, Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. 
Well, now he said, I've told you plainly. And they said, we're going to pick up stones and stone you. Thank you for telling us plainly. And you just got to think of the irony going on here. He has essentially done what they asked. And so he answers them, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. He has left Jerusalem, about 17 miles from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River. So this is, we have in that one verse, we have essentially a day's journey. And there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So as we continue in our passage, we see the religious leaders have threatened Jesus because of his divine claims. They have once again, for the third time in the Gospel of John, picked up stones to kill him with. But Jesus stops them by asking, verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Are they going to kill Jesus because he made the lame walk, the blind see, the dead live? Just one of which one of these terrible things are they going to stone him for? So they answer him in verse 33. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And it is so ironic that God, having made himself a man in the person of Jesus Christ, now stands accused of religious high treason because he claimed to be exactly what he is, God. And so Jesus, very, uh, I want to say smart, but of course you know Jesus is smart. In just an incredibly insightful way, he turns the tables by appealing to their authority. He, we see here that sheep believe what they read. That's the scripture. That's the blank, scripture. He appeals to the scripture. He quotes from Psalm 82. He says, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? That's right out of Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, because Psalm 82 is talking about all those uh, prophets and Moses and all those people who received God's word. It says, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. So he's recalled the situation from the Old Testament that is referred to in Psalm 82, where particularly Israel's judges are referred to as gods because they are the recipients of divine revelation. And therefore, how can they get mad at Jesus, the giver of divine revelation? And Jesus defends himself against their charge and rebukes them at the same time for not following all of Scripture. And by saying that the Scripture cannot be broken, 
He's testifying to the complete authority and reliability of the Bible. He's making a clear statement of the whole truth of the Bible. It's true in all of its parts and in every way, and we must accept all of it. He doesn't give us the right to pick and choose only those parts of the Bible that we like or only those parts of the Bible that are easy to understand. If Christ, God's one and only Son, held to the Scripture as God's Word, can we as his followers, as his sheep, hold a view of the Bible that is any less than Christ's view? Now, obviously, the answer is no. We should have the same high view of Scripture that Jesus had. And we should believe God's word just as Jesus did. And Jesus continues to challenge them here. Look at the latter part of that same passage. We see that sheep believe what they see, his works his works. He challenges them by referring to what he has done. Picking up verse 36. says if I or verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. He's telling them that his miracles done in the father's name revealed to him as the Father's will, carried out by the Father's power, when taken all together, testified to the fact that the Father has sent him. Clearly there's a oneness between God the Father and God the Son that is revealed in carrying out the divine task according to the divine will. Now remember, there at the temple, it's the Feast of Dedication, back in verse 22. And between verse 21, where we ended last week, And verse 22, two months have passed. It's time for another great feast. The Feast of Dedication is the newest of feasts. In fact, some of those there with Jesus had probably heard stories from their great-great-grandfathers who heard them from their great-great-grandfathers about how back in 175 B.C. there was a madman named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was from Syria. And with Roman permission, he moved in and conquered Palestine, Israel, and ruled over the area. And he attempted to mix Hebrew, Greek, and Roman culture. And so he tried to get all the different types of people to adopt the customs of all the other places. And in so doing, he desecrated the temple He forced pork down the priests' throats because they weren't allowed to eat pork. He turned the chambers of the temple into a brothel and he converted the altar meant for burnt offerings into an altar for Zeus and defiled it by sacrificing a pig on the altar of burnt offering. And this kind of stuff went on for 10 years, fueling the Jews' hatred of both the Syrians and the Romans which charged the messianic atmosphere into which Jesus came. This isn't a new thing. Don't ever think that anything in the Middle East is new. You know, the problems there go all the way back to the children of Abraham. But you can understand now this great animosity towards the Romans, towards Gentiles, towards Syrians, towards any foreigner... I mean, they have suffered under their hands. They've seen their religion just defiled and humiliated. 
but those were also the great days of Judas Maccabeus. And Judas Maccabeus uh, was uh, probably the most famous Israelite in that time, certainly leading up to Jesus' day. Maccabeus means the hammer. So we're talking about Judas the hammer. Sounds like he could be a TV character today, you know, some sort of crime-fighting hero. Judas the hammer, starring in CSI Jerusalem. (laughs) You know, something like that. And Judas Maccabeus fought against Antiochus, and after three years of fighting against overwhelming odds, defeated Antiochus in 165 B.C. And this explains, one, why the name Judas was so popular in Jesus' day. There were many people named Judas. It was one of the most common names, sort of like David is in our church. uh, Because they were named after Judas Maccabeus. He's a great Israelite hero. And there came the day after he won the battle when Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple and consecrated it. We read his own words in the non-canonical book of 1 Maccabees. He says, every year at that season, the days of the dedication of the altar should be observed with gladness and joy for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month of Kislev. Now, in keeping with those words, every house in Jerusalem had eight candles in the window on the 25th of Kislev. The Feast of Dedication commemorates the cleansing of the temple under Judas Maccabeus. The feast is celebrated in the winter, usually towards the end of December, and we more commonly know it as the Jewish holiday, presently known as the Feast of Lights. Called that because of the miracle at that time in which the lamps in the temple stayed lit for eight days while the temple was being rededicated, even though there was enough only enough oil uh, to light the lamps for one night. And it was, in modern terms, Hanukkah. That's where the holiday of Hanukkah comes from. It's the Feast of Dedication. That's what's going on. This historical detail that we get here, that the Lord Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, is, uh, by the way, sort of a side note, an interesting part of the argument for celebrating a feast such as Christmas that is not specifically ordered in the Word of God. The Feast of Dedication, of course, was not authorized in the Law of Moses, but it was an appropriate celebration of God's deliverance of his people, and Jesus participated in it. It's a feast to commemorate the dedication of the temple. The setting apart of the temple is holy. That's the background for this whole passage. And here Jesus claims now that he is the one who has been set apart, made holy, sanctified. Because now he is the temple. Now he is where God dwells. Now he is God's presence on earth. He has fulfilled this feast. Just as he fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles back in John 7 and 8. But you see, they're not interested in a Messiah who's going to be a suffering servant. They want a conquering military hero who would kick the Romans out of Israel. They wanted Jesus the hammer, who would finish the work of Judas the hammer and force Rome to flee. They wanted Christ according to their definition of Christ, not according to the biblical definition of Christ. But Jesus has told them, he's come to do the Father's will, and then he does exactly and only what the Father does. 
And he challenges them, and if you look at it, he really gives them an excuse. He gives them an out. He tells them they don't have to believe unless he does what the Father does. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe. But if he is doing what the Father does, then they have no excuse. There is no other rational choice but to believe. And he offers up the evidence, and he challenges them to examine it just as he does today. If Jesus was false and a liar, then you're free to walk away. But if Jesus is who he said he is, and if Jesus does what he says he does, then act accordingly, put your faith in him as your Savior and your Lord. And then our passage finishes with Jesus leaving them, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. He returns to the place where his ministry began, the place of his baptism by John the Baptist. And while he's there, we're reminded that sheep believe what they hear. Sheep believe what they hear, John's words. John's words. The people there remember Jesus, and they remember John. They say, verse 41, many came to him. They said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. They remembered the things that John had said about Jesus. Some of those things, John 1, uh, 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John 1.34, uh, John the Baptist said, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And these people remember that. They remember what John the Baptist said and taught them about Jesus. What a way to be remembered. What an epitaph that John the Baptist gets here. Everything that John said about this man was true. I don't think that any of us could be asked to be remembered by anything better. That people would look back at our lives and say, everything that he said, everything that she said about Jesus was true. That would be a great way to be remembered. I think that's a great testimony to John the Baptist. This is a great passage about Jesus being the Christ, about Jesus being the Son of God. And if those things are true, then you are secure as the sheep. You have nothing to worry about. I remember a number of years ago, it was the same movie was on yesterday afternoon on one of those old movie channels. and uh, But I saw, I think it was late 90s, the movie Cliffhanger. Anybody remember that movie? It was a Sylvester Stallone movie about mountain climbing and sort of a action thriller kind of thing. And in the movie, uh, Sylvester Stallone is supposed to be a world-class climber. And it starts, the movie starts with this harrowing climbing sequence where they're actually traversing between these two high peaks, these high pinnacles, and they've got this rope uh, that's going across, and they're crossing this huge uh, ravine. And they're hauling themselves across on this rope. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've done that maybe at about 40 feet. But when you're the one on the rope and you're looking down, it looks like it's 400 feet. 
So I think, you know, doing it for real, where it probably is 400 feet, you know, it probably looks like it's 4,000 feet. And so they're going across, and they get like halfway, of course, and one of the female climbers gets into trouble and loses her grip, and she's starting to fall. And so Stallone, uh, trying to be the hero, goes out to get her and tries to rescue her. And I'll never forget this one scene. He gets there just as she slips, and of course he grabs her hand, and he's holding her, and then her hands, it's wet and slippery from sweat and hanging on, and it just starts to slip out of his hand. And he loses her. And you get uh, his point of view. The camera's looking from his point of view, eyes straight down, as she falls to her death on the rocks far below. Now, for someone like me, who's not totally comfortable with heights to begin with, it was as nerve-wracking a thing as I can imagine. Being up thousands of feet, and he caught her, and then she just slips out of his hand, and just being there and watching her fall. And I imagine there are times in our life where we're slipping, where we're sweaty and tired and pretty much a mess. And we are grasping for something, trying to find something to hold on to. And the rope we grab may be emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, because when we start to fall, we will grab for almost anything. And if we manage to grab hold, then we have to hope that what we're holding on to is strong enough to sustain us. And it's hard to trust things you can't see. That's exactly what God has asked us to do with the most important part of life, eternity. God has said, I am going to reach out to you and grab hold. And I will not let you go. And no matter what happens, no matter how difficult, no matter how big a mess it is, no matter how hard you've tried, how hard you've worked, no matter what, I will not let go. And no one can snatch you out of my hand. I'll take care of all your needs in this world and the world to come. Someone once wrote, our salvation really rests on God's strength, not ours. Our safety is in Jesus' power, not ours. Our protection uh, depends on the Father's firm grip, not ours. No one, including the devil, can sever that vital union that connects us with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because it's Christ's uh, death and resurrection that perfects us, because of his finished work, not ours. Do you really, really, really trust God? Is your eternity in his grip? His grasp on you will never slip. You will never fall. Not because of your strength, but because of his strength. He will finish the job. Are you secure in his hand. Think about that. We need to pray.